This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ryan Anderson is the William F. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also the founder and editor of Public Discourse, that's the online journal, of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. He received his own Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton University and his doctoral degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. His research has been often cited, even at the U.S. Supreme Court, and his books have been rightly influential. His latest book is entitled, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. The transgender revolution is just that. It is a revolution, not only as we think about issues of gender and sexual identity, but as we think about an entire civilization that requires distinctions, distinctions that have been, for all of human experience, based in what was understood unquestionably to be reality. So what we're looking at now is a very challenge to whether or not there is a reality or a reality we can know when it comes to what it means to be human and what it means to be male and female. Ryan Anderson, in your new book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, you are responding to a moment that would not have been conceivable in any previous age of human existence. Uh, That's exactly right. Um, We've always had people who struggled uh, with their gender identity, people who uh, experienced a gender identity disorder, a gender identity conflict, what's now called gender dysphoria. Um, but never before have we entertained the idea that that meant someone was the opposite sex. Uh, never before have we really entertained the idea at a popular societal-wide level that a boy could be trapped in the body of a girl, that a girl could be trapped in the body of a boy. Uh, and so this really is something new under the sun. Um, and we now need to really wrestle with this. Uh, how do we understand what's going on, and, and how do we respond to what's going on? Well, the answer to the last question on the part of many people is to do their very best not to respond, uh, to, uh, to, to try to uh, act as if uh, somehow we can, uh, we can live apart from this transgender moment. Yeah, many people want to um, ignore it um, in the hope that it will go away, that if I ignore it, it will ignore me. Uh, and unfortunately, that just isn't going to be uh, the reality here. Um, you know, uh, who is it? It's um, um, Eric Erickson frequently says, you know, you not, might not be interested in the culture war, but the culture war is interested in you. You will be made to care, is Eric's uh, catchphrase there. And um, I think for better or worse, um, every one of our listeners uh, will have to uh, wrestle with this question in one way or another. They will have a family member or a friend who experiences gender dysphoria or a classmate who experiences it or a teacher or a colleague, um, someone somewhere in their lifetime, it's highly likely that this is going to be coming up. Uh, And so we need to know what's the truth of the matter. You know, how do we properly understand human nature and what the human costs are of getting human nature wrong? Uh, How do we compassionately respond to people who are struggling uh, with their bodily uh, identity? Uh, And what should our law say about these issues, right? What should the government be saying? What should public policy uh, be saying? Yes, uh, I uh, mean to take nothing away from Eric, but uh, that quote has to be tracked back to Leon Trotsky, uh, who uh, originated saying that uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And as you said, you will be made to care. And I think that rootage is important because at least uh, Trotsky understood himself to be uh, a revolutionary, 
a revolutionary, if anything, more revolutionary than Lenin. And, uh, and, and what we are looking at, even though this is often not acknowledged, is, uh, is, is a now culturally mandated overthrow of an entire way of looking at reality in the world. And, uh, and, and that's, I think, what's largely missing from a lot of this conversation is that uh, when you're talking about LGBT, the T isn't like anything that comes before, uh, even in the, uh, the LGB. Uh, those, are, those are issues the human beings have struggled with and tried to define for a long time that, uh, that clearly all civilizations have understood to be outside the norm and thus to be sanctioned. And, uh, and, and, and now, of course, we're looking at the normalization of L and G and B. But T is a different thing altogether because it raises even more fundamental questions about what it means to be human. That, that exactly. These are getting at anthropological kind of metaphysical questions. And what's interesting is that um, the activists on the left want to present these things as if they're merely scientific and merely medical. Um, because in our culture, uh, the high priests, they're not the philosophers and the theologians. The high priests in our culture are the doctors and the scientists. And the and psychotherapists. So is, and the psychotherapists and the psychiatrists and psychologists. But what is fundamentally here a metaphysical question, what is the nature of the human person, uh, is being presented as if it's merely a scientific or a medical question. And so people who have MD and PhD after their names are being given a, 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 an authority to answer these questions, um, smuggling in the authority of science and medicine, when really what we're considering are two radically different ways of understanding human nature. I hope that's what unfolds in this conversation, and I, I don't schedule these conversations except with authors and about books I consider to be of consequence. And uh, your book is uniquely timely and I think extremely well argued. Uh, there is a history behind it. And uh, as you introduce your argument, you talk about gender dysphoria. I think it's important for all of us to recognize that that term did not emerge uh, as a, as a, a bit of vocabulary to normalize a transgender worldview. It emerged out of a psychotherapeutic attempt to understand what was going on with people who experienced some kind of, uh, well, you use the term, discordant gender identity. But what's important to recognize is that gender dysphoria as a term emerged from the psychiatric construct as a way of describing a set of mistaken beliefs that an individual might hold, that is, the mistaken belief that one might actually be a gender other than one's sex. That's right. And uh, what, what I do in the book is I, 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 uh, at one point I tell a narrative of how historically uh, gender dysphoria uh, was responded to within the medical profession and how new um, therapeutic approaches have really been pioneered within the past a decade or more. Uh, in particular, it was only a decade ago that the first pediatric gender clinic in the United States opened. Um, but the history of this is, is much uh, larger than that. And I start the narrative in the 60s. This is when Johns Hopkins opened its right. uh, gender identity uh, clinic, and they started doing sex reassignment surgeries. They thought that the appropriate response was to try to change someone's body. And then in the 1970s, Dr. Paul McHugh, uh, who had been a Harvard undergraduate, he then went to Harvard Medical School, he was then appointed to be chair of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Hospital and at the medical school. So he was the psychiatrist-in-chief at the hospital and the chair of psychiatry at the, at the med school. And he asked one of his colleagues to do a study. 
what was the long-term outcome of these patients who had had surgical reassignment of their sexual identity. And what he found was that while they were happy with the surgery as a cosmetic matter, you know, it had gone well in like that technical sense, they didn't really show any signs of increased uh, psychosocial outcomes. Uh, the struggles they had with anxiety or depression or suicide ideation or suicide attempt or even completed suicides, that they, those struggles uh, persisted. Uh, and so McHugh, back in 1979, shut down the sex reassignment clinic at Johns Hopkins. Uh, he said that it was a misdirection of medicine, uh, that there were people who were coming to Hopkins uh, with a psychosocial struggle, and they were trying to treat it with surgery directed at the body. And he said it would be much better to have the therapy directed at the mind and at the emotions. Uh, what can we do to help people align their thoughts and their feelings with reality including the reality of their bodies, rather than trying to realign their body to their mistaken thoughts and feelings. He thought this was turning the nature of medicine upside down. But mistaken thoughts and feelings there. That, that's where I want to zero in for just a moment to sure. interrupt your narrative here. No, that's fine. Uh, because I hold, uh, as a Christian theologian and a cultural observer, to what I would describe as a steady-state theory of moral outrage. Uh, which is to say, it, 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 we just shift the, uh, the objects of moral outrage. Society generally distributes moral outrage in something of a steady state. Now, my argument would be this. Uh, the question is, who has the mistaken and harmful beliefs that, uh, that ought to be eradicated and, uh, and dealt with? Uh, until very recently, it was someone who believed their uh, sex and their gender to be different that was suffering from harmful and mistaken beliefs. But now it's the rest of us who will not get with the program who uh, who are believed to hold to the mistaken and harmful beliefs. Um, and, and so when you're looking at someone like Dr. Paul McHugh, for whom I have tremendous respect – uh, he is now believed by many others in the official medical establishment, uh, regardless of all evidence and research, to himself be an agent of harmful and mistaken beliefs. Uh, but everybody believes somebody's mistaken in this question. Everybody believes that the issues are so important that somebody's beliefs are harmful in this equation. But we've just seen a revolution in which that entire world's been turned upside down. Who's mistaken? There's quite a bit there that, that's exactly right, that we all have an assumption or an underlying conviction about what um, human flourishing looks like. Uh, and so some people are now arguing that it's a normal variation on human development, uh, that some boys identify as girls and that some girls identify as boys. That's uh, one of the doctors that I quote in the book says, just like we have left-handed people, we also have transgender people, and that this is a normal development of human development, a normal variation of human development. And so that human flourishing would be to help that boy transition to be a girl, to help that girl transition to be a boy. Now, another way of looking at this would be that uh, this is a disordered form of development, uh, disordered not being used in some pathological sense, but just saying that we have orderly and disorderly forms of development, uh, development that is ordered towards its proper end. And so there we would see the trajectory is that a boy develops to be a man, to become a husband and a father. Like that's where our sex identity matters most. It puts us on a trajectory for a certain developmental pathway. And so flourishing is when you reach that, that, those final kind of end states. And so right now we have in, I believe it's nine or 10 states, 
where a physician like Dr. McHugh could lose his medical license for what the government claims is, quote, conversion therapy if he tries to help a boy who feels uncomfortable being a boy identify as a boy. They claim that's conversion therapy. But in all 50 states, if you're a doctor who helps a boy transition to be a girl, that's not called conversion. That's called affirmation. And they call it gender affirmation to transition a child. And so again, working in the background are certain assumptions or core convictions about human nature, human flourishing, and the trajectory of human development. Uh, What's normal human development and what's uh, abnormal or disordered in a certain sense. So the average person in the year 2018 looking at the uh, conversation and uh, the the state of affairs as you just described it would assume, uh, at least uh, many assume, that uh, it must always have been this way or uh, should always have been this way. And as you say, they look to uh, medical authorities as the kind of the high priests of, uh, of the current uh, operational religion. But the problem is that the medical establishment doesn't tell one story about this, and it certainly doesn't tell a consistent story. Not only do you have the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association uh, both describing uh, homosexual orientation as disordered and uh, and as pathological in the sense you mean that, that it's a pathology of something that needs to be described and diagnosed. And uh, that was changed in 1972. In 1973, the psychiatric and psychological associations just uh, just reversed their course, in each in one meeting, one year after the other. But on the transgender issues, the gender identity issues, the very same thing has happened. Uh, and, and so what was described as a problem that would inhibit uh, human flourishing, it was described as gender dysphoria. Uh, now um, it is an uncomfortability with gender dysphoria that, that is, the, uh, is the diagnosis that needs to be resolved by, uh, as you say, uh, a transitioning that is often referred to as, as affirmation. And the same thing happened on the sexual orientation front. It's right there in successive editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, kind of the, the, the regulatory book of the therapeutic industry. Uh, sexual orientation that was homosexual and erotic feelings that were homosexual were described as, as the diagnosis, which meant the problem, say, in 1971. But, uh, but after this revolution – the psychiatric problem or the psychological problem is merely feeling uncomfortable, probably because of social pressures, it's implied, uh, with one's uh, sexual orientation. I mean, it, it's really difficult to uh, underestimate the scale and power of this kind of moral transformation. It's turning the world upside down. And it's um, trying to silence anyone who doesn't see things the way that the um – political and increasingly the medical elite see things. So what's interesting is that um, you mentioned the trajectory of how the DSM has changed on this issue, but many psychologists and psychiatrists uh, think that the um, proposals to put a uh, five-year-old boy um, on a course of social transition and a 10-year-old boy on puberty-blocking drugs and to give the 15-year-old boy estrogen and the 18-year-old boy surgery, they think this is a radical, untested, experimental form of care. Um, but they've largely been intimidated into silence because it's been linked to identity politics. Absolutely. And it's been linked to um, the gay rights movement. 
And they saw what happened there, and they don't want to stick their heads up just to have their heads chopped off. And it is really interesting, though, that the, uh, the, the L, the G, and the B required a transformation of psychiatry and psychology and, and other therapeutic uh, modalities. But this is requiring a redefinition of surgery and pediatrics. That, that's, a, that's a very different level of, uh, of, of change here. And many people um, are, are, are hoping that they can avoid being caught in the crosshairs. You know, they, wanted, they got into medicine not because they're an ideologue. Uh, they want to heal people. They want to help people feel whole and to flourish. And they don't want to have to fight a political battle like this if they can avoid it. Whereas the other side, many of them went into um, gender studies or they went into a specialty of gender care precisely because they have a certain uh, worldview precisely on these questions that they want to advance, that they want to promote. And then all of the cultural uh, rewards and costs uh, support a certain outcome here. Your career will not be uh, promoted within uh, a major research hospital if you oppose uh, a transgender treatment protocol for a child. But if you support it, that will help you. That's why we've seen 45 pediatric gender clinics open within the past decade. And many of them are at the most elite of American institutions, Duke, uh, Boston Children's Hospital, um, the UC San Francisco Children's Hospital. Uh, And these are where the gender experts um, are telling parents that, oh, yes, your child might have been born in the wrong body. Their sex assigned at birth, the new term of art, uh, it was misassigned at birth, and therefore we can reassign it later in life through hormones and surgery. And so many parents who aren't ideological, they're being caught in the crosshairs because they're just doing what they're told by the experts is best for their children. Um, And they may come to regret that later in life. Uh, Indeed. And by the way, that uh, term of art you refer to as a sex uh, assigned at birth, uh, at least uh, metaphysically, uh, physically, it's assigned at, uh, at fertilization. It's, and it's not even assigned. It's determined <laughs> at fertilization. Right. No one assigns it uh, at fertilization. It's determined uh, based upon the uh, chromosomes that we inherit from our parents, our mother and our father, the sperm and the egg that fuse to uh, uh, form us. At that moment, that determines our sex. Those chromosomes then give rise to the production of certain Uh, sex organs, which then produce certain sex hormones, which then organize the developing body along either a male or a female trajectory, so that an ultrasound technician at week 20 can recognize the sex of the child. Absolutely. The ultrasound technician isn't assigning it. They're recognizing something that was determined at conception and then developed. Right. And I, I understand the natural argument you're making. I am making a theological argument that there is someone who assigns, uh, who, who assigns that uh, sex. And uh, so it's a theological ass- uh, definition of assignment. But I, I understand arguing from a, from a, a natural perspective. Uh, yes, long before anyone says it's a boy, it's a boy. And, uh, and, and likewise for a girl. Uh, as we're looking at this uh, this unfolding, and and I think this is really important as uh, as we seek to understand why the discussion in 2018 is not as the discussion was in 2016, and is not as the discussion will be in 2020, and you can bank on that. 
I want to read your own words back to you. Early in the book you write, uh, three realities about transgender activists will become clear. First, they are always changing their creed and expanding their demands. Yesterday's mandatory vocabulary will become tomorrow's epithets. Yesterday's enlightenment will be tomorrow's benighted bigotry. Yesterday's requirements of science and medicine and justice are tomorrow's suicide-inducing oppression, end quote. Uh, that's saying a lot in just a few words. Yeah, um, that, that, that's in a, I guess that's in a summary portion of the book, and it's, you know, it's meant to kind of show you what's going to come. But in some of the subsequent chapters, I try to um, illustrate that by showing even what various LGBT groups said a decade ago, they now claim is an unjust form of transphobia. Uh, many of these LGBT groups didn't even include the T in their initial names. And so I actually I point at various times in the book to two different groups that left out the T. And so now they just go by the acronym. The acronym doesn't stand for anything uh, because it was something like uh, parents and friends of gays and lesbians. And then they realized that leaves out transgender. And so now it's just PFLAG, but it doesn't, it's an acronym that stands for nothing. Um, they used to use language saying someone who is transgender is biologically one sex but identifies as the opposite sex. And I quote one of the activist groups from a 2005 document, more or less saying that. And then I quote from their 2016 document, uh, something they had for journalists saying, it's insensitive and it's harmful to say that a transgender person identifies as the opposite sex. They are the opposite sex. And that's another um, major development in the claims that they're making. It's sure. no longer Absolutely. about how someone identifies. It's about who someone is. But that is a key issue right there, because what we are looking at is the sexual revolution uh, fueled by this massive uh, presumption of individual autonomy and uh, the self as a project and self-identity as, as the primary task. Uh, but the use of, uh, of, uh, of the verb to be, you know, that this is who an individual is, um, that brings in ontology. Which, yep. which is unavoidable, uh, and the Christian worldview is based in a primary affirmation of ontology, of, of being, and, uh, and, and one of my primary arguments throughout all of these discussions is that uh, eventually ontology wins. Ontology trumps autonomy every time. Uh, ontology is, is prior to every other question. And it eventually is is uh, unavoidable, but for that matter, it's also undeniable. So, Ryan, let me just put it this way. Um, in, in describing why ontology always wins in the end, I'm just going to imagine that someone is exhuming a, a community uh, centuries from now and looking in the cemetery and finding DNA. The ontology is going to find an XY chromosome and is going to say, that is a male. Now, during that person's entire lifetime, from as you sketch the story, from uh, preschool uh, all the way through uh, puberty-suppressing drugs and all the way through uh, cosmetic surgery, as Dr. McHugh calls it, uh, a mutilation cosmetic surgery, all that can be successful. And the society can say for decades, you are a woman, you are not a man, but, uh, but that anthropologist or archaeologist is going to find male DNA, and that's and a male skeleton, by the way, and is going to say male. 
so the, the, this use of ontology, uh, or at least the attempt to say that someone is, I am this or that, um, that's not going to win over the long haul. No, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why um, in the subtitle of the book I say responding to the transgender moment. None of us know how long this moment is going to last, but it's not um, the right side of history. It's not the next wave of the future, precisely because it gets human nature wrong. It gets the nature of reality wrong. It gets ontology and metaphysics and anthropology wrong. And in the long run, um, you can't sustain a lie indefinitely. Uh, In the long run, uh, the truth uh, wins out. Uh, because it's impossible to constantly be warring against nature, including against human nature. Um, and one of the things that I point out in the book is that the entire purpose of life, uh, rightly understood, um, is to align our thoughts, our feelings, and our beliefs to reality. Uh, and I make this parallel with the religious life, right? Part of the religious life isn't to believe whatever we want to believe about God, but it's to conform our beliefs to the truth about God. Uh, And in the same way, when it comes, and and so I say, you know, if you call that religious identity, you know, Jesus either is or is not uh, the Messiah, regardless of what any of us believe. Uh, And Al Mohler either is or is not a man, regardless of what any of us, including Al Mohler, believes. And so the, the purpose here would be for Al Mohler to believe the truth about Jesus and the truth about Al Mohler, right? To believe... And his beliefs don't determine reality, uh, but he should try to align his beliefs with the truth about reality uh, and his feelings and his thoughts and his actions. I mean, this is what Augustine points to when he says, you know, it's, we try to have rightly ordered loves, rightly ordered desires. And the problem is that we don't have rightly ordered loves or rightly ordered desires. And the moral life is all about rightly ordering our loves and desires. And, you know, those who say they hold so tenaciously to this uh, current ideology, uh, they can't keep a straight story. So I, I have written and, uh, and spoken so often about these things and had so much engagement with uh, some, some of the – actually the figures in uh, the psychiatric community who have been de- debating this and even, I guess the best words, pioneering this for some time – uh, they can't keep their story straight. And I find this constantly in the media because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so regularly addressed with one of these questions. And so sometime back, I was contacted by a reporter and asked to respond to the pregnant man. And uh, the reporter is the one who slipped up because the reporter could not keep even his questioning straight. As much as he was emphatically trying to make clear, I've joined this revolution and you're the outlier, he could not keep man and woman straight talking about a single individual who, by the way, is pregnant and is a woman. Uh, but you had Time Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, just about everybody running the story about the transgender man who is now the uh, pregnant man. But, you know, I just I think that's still with a wink and a nod. I mean, I just don't believe these guys if they weren't being observed by others and they weren't worried about losing their jobs. I don't think for a minute they've bought into this. I think I don't. And as you said, there are a lot of surgeons and and psychiatrists and others. They clearly have not bought into this, but they're being coerced. And and some of them are, are quite open about speaking about the coercion. And then you document in the book what I've talked about uh, on the briefing, and that's the human rights campaign 
uh, even providing an index of how LGBT, emphasis on T, friendly medical institutions are. I mean, this is an open threat. Oh, it, it is. And they went after Johns Hopkins because Johns Hopkins refused to publicly criticize Paul McHugh for his writings on gender identity. But what Johns Hopkins did do just a year and a half ago now was that they reopened uh, their gender identity clinic and they relaunched um, surgical uh, sex reassignment. Uh, it had been um, shut down for 30 some years and that, that was one of their responses to the HRC pressure. But they've never formally uh, distanced themselves from Dr. McHugh and that's partly because McHugh has many students who agree with him on this. Um, they're, they're silent um, but they know that Dr. McHugh is right. Uh, and I think increasingly what we're seeing is that there's a lot of people who are not comfortable with what's going on, especially when it's with children. You know, if Bruce wants to become Caitlin, it's a free country and he can make his own mistakes. He has to make his own decisions. But when it's children, um, adults shouldn't be making mistakes on behalf of children, right? And we should be right. uh, giving children the time and the space to develop and to mature in a uh, healthy and sound environment. And that's exactly where I wanted to, to lead the discussion. On, uh, sure. on page 35 in your book, um, you, you, you raise this uh, exciting uh, declarations made in a federal court case by a Dr. Scott uh, Leibovitz. He said, and I quote, peer-reviewed research demonstrates that prepubertal children asserting a different gender identity from the one they were assigned at birth are cognitively capable enough to be aware of the gender they are asserting he went on to say the meaning of a child's gender identity assertion at a younger age is no less valid than the meaning of a gender identity assertion of an older child, end quote. I, uh, I wanted to rip the page out, but in the next sentence you wrote, on what other subject is the assertion of a two-year-old no less valid than that of an older child or an adult? This is, this is horrifying. And, and what I want to reverse this and say what we are doing, and we're doing this also when we are told we're supposed to ask preschoolers their preferred personal pronoun. What we are doing is uh, is mistreating children by telling them they have to decide or discover uh, if they are a boy or a girl. Yeah. I, I, about two weeks ago, I was in New York City, and I was um, leading a discussion of the book for a group of young professionals in Manhattan. And so I gave a lecture, and then over dinner we were doing a group discussion, and I asked a series of questions. I said, you know, what does it mean to be a man? or to be a woman? And I said, next set of questions. What is it to feel like a man or feel like a woman? Next set of questions. What is it to act like a man, act like a woman? And we had a wide-ranging discussion, lots of disagreement, lots of confusion about, I don't even know how to answer this question. I don't even know what it means. And when I was done with it all at the end of the day, I was like, and how do you think a prepubertal child is supposed to know the answer to these questions? When the doctor says that they're cognitively capable enough to be aware of what it is to be a man or a woman or to feel like a man or a woman or act like a man or a woman, when here we have a bunch of, you know, elites in Manhattan in professional jobs who aren't even clear about these things, why would we defer to a child and then start radically transforming their body through hormones, puberty blocking drugs, and possibly one day surgery? rather than trying to help them develop a mature and nuanced understanding of sex and gender, uh, what they mean, what they don't mean. So many children have a very limited knowledge and understanding because they have limited experience on these issues. 
Perhaps one of the most immediate issues that comes to our mind in this kind of conversation, a conversation today with Ryan Anderson about the transgender moment, that realization is the fact that even in attempting to begin to talk about these issues, we find ourselves talking about the deepest questions of human existence, of human identity, and the meaning of what it means to be human in the first place. When looking at the transgender revolution, those most basic questions cannot be avoided. For that matter, they can't be avoided even at the beginning. A thousand questions emerge from all of this, and, uh, and necessarily so. Uh, and so I have to be selective in trying to think about the, uh, the the issues that we ought to talk about of greatest importance. But you've done an awful lot of work, not only in this book, which it, and it's really in the background of this book, in the foreground of some of your other writings, uh, you've really put an incredible amount of energy into making natural law defenses of marriage and uh, and and sexual morality. Uh, but this gets to something that I find most people don't want to talk about, and uh, it, it's it's not directly addressed in your book. But uh, when we are talking about this transitioning surgery, or what's uh, what's now called euphemistically uh, uh, gender affirmation surgery, we are talking about something that is still inherently cosmetic. Uh, so just the other day, I was looking at some of the literature. Uh, from the transgender movement, and it was talking about, here's the part people don't want to talk about, genitals. And, uh, okay, I get that. I understand. And and, and even uh, Bruce, uh, now called Caitlyn Jenner, says that one of the frustrations, how many people want to say, have you had the surgery? Well, okay, so let's just understand genitals are the issue here. But genitals imply uh, the very Latin word generation. Uh, the generation of the species. It, uh, the uh, genitals imply uh, reproduction. And again, ontology just comes through to say that's not going to happen. Uh, you can say I'm a woman, but uh, – and, and by the way, one uh, obstetrician pointed out to me, it's not just as if you could say just the lack of a uterus and everything else is also required for a woman to carry a baby to term after conceiving. It's also the fact that the male pelvis would not allow any kind of baby to pass through. Again, there's ontology, but we, we, we in, in the, I looked it up just before this conversation. There is the use of the phrase genitals in sexual reassignment surgery, but there's no generation. Yeah. And, 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 which is what you point to there is you look at the etymology of some of these words and think you have genitals, gender, generosity, generations. They're, they're, they're all built on the same Absolutely. Uh, uh, prefix there um, that it's based upon we have two different set of genitals, which is why there is a gender binary. Um, there's it's also no why third, there's a human race, but yes. It's, but but, but you know, when people say there's no such thing as a gender binary, there's male and there's female precisely because they're two sexes, they're two sex organs, they're two sex chromosomes, they're two uh, sex gametes, sperm and egg. And it's when these things unite, right? So when a man and a woman unite as one flesh, that then sperm and egg can fuse, that then that act of generosity can create the next generation, right? All these things are springing forth from the same basic reality, that we're created male and female, uh, where male and female are created for each other, in an act that can be generous, that will then create 
the next generation. Apart from this understanding, there is no way of understanding sex or gender. Right? Uh, everything else will just be stereotypes. And that's yes. why it's not surprising that you see that, you know, if you have a boy who plays with dolls, they'll say that's a sign that he's actually a girl. Or if you have a man who wants to wear a dress or who wants to wear lipstick. When Bruce became Caitlin, um, that cover photo on Vanity Fair was a very stereotypical pinup image. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once you get away from the underlying realities, and one of the realities here is that you can't reassign sex because sex wasn't assigned by a human being in the first place. Uh, and so there yes. isn't a way of modern medicine reassigning it. And that's one of the reasons why uh, a physician like Dr. McHugh would say that it's so difficult to live as if the opposite sex. You know, there are two issues that emerge immediately out of this, one of them going back to, uh, to Jenner. Uh, there again, the transgender activists aren't telling one story and uh, because some of them are very frustrated with the definition of transgender that became associated uh, with the, uh, the social construct of Caitlyn Jenner uh, because this is so stereotypical. First of all, it implies uh, race and class and social status to be able to afford. I mean, Vanity Fair is not out there. Uh, taking photographs of most people. Uh, it, re- it represents a celebrity culture. And uh, and so there are some in the transgender activist community who are saying, look, this is just too stereotypical. But others are saying, well, wait just a minute. This is exactly what we've been arguing is every individual's right and responsibility. And furthermore, this is incredibly useful to us at the moment uh, because it was – I think the phrase transgender moment was uh, was Time magazine largely talking about the – claim of the gender transition. So that's one way in which it's culturally useful, but it's not entirely ideologically consistent, even with the transgender activists. Not, not at all. And, you, and you, what's interesting to watch are some of the um, kind of intramural um, skirmishes that are taking place. And one of them is taking place between uh, feminists on the left and LGBT activists on the left. And, and these are sometimes referred to as the TERF wars, uh, with TERF being an acronym for uh, Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist, T-E-R-S, yes. TERF. And, and their basic claim is that being a woman is a lot more than just cleavage and lipstick. And that part of what's going on with transgender ideology is that you say if you feel like a woman, whatever that means, that that makes you a woman. And then you identify with uh, many of the most stereotypical aspects of what it is to be or to feel like or to identify as a woman. Um, no one that I know of went along with uh, the Rachel Dolezal claim that she was actually an African-American. I remember this is the white woman who was oh, heading up a yep. NAACP chapter. Uh, to my knowledge, there wasn't any prominent figure that actually said, yes, she is African-American. And yet, for some reason, on questions of sex and gender, yep. um, elites are willing to go along with this. You might call this the ultimate cultural appropriation. To, to be able to appropriate <laughs> the opposite sexes. Yes. I, I mean, yes. w- one feminist said, you know, it's so ridiculous. Men are now even better at being women than women are when Jenner won the Woman of the Year award. Yep. And I forget which yeah. feminist said that, but she has a point. Men can now even be Women of the Year. 
Yes, you, you, you uh, and uh, by the way, that was the second uh, conflict I wanted to raise, and you raised it uh, already, and that's between the, uh, the second wave feminists and the transgender activists. And so trying to put feminism is, is where I wanted to press you a bit on the book, actually, because uh, feminism is not one argument. And uh, never has been monolithic, but it's gone through at least three waves with the first wave feminism mostly about women's suffrage and second wave feminism being the Betty Friedan uh, movement of uh, – I, I just mentioned her as one figure. Uh, Jermaine Greer also in this and uh, you could just go down a long list. Uh, but they were arguing that uh, the, the home is a place of – it's a domestic uh, concentration camp as Betty Friedan said and – you point out in your book that a part of what they were arguing, and this is also central to the argument behind the Roe v. Wade decision, is that a woman having a it, it, this this reproductive function and vulnerability uh, to pregnancy is forced upon her in a way that's unequal with men, and the only way to be equal is to have complete reproductive control. Uh, but they did know what a woman was when they needed to know what a woman was. For instance, who could enroll in historic women's college, and uh, and who would be covered by. Uh, the newly established non-discrimination legislation, uh, especially uh, going back to the late 1960s and early 1970s. But now you've got the millennial feminists, kind of a third wave of feminism, and they're doing their very best to uh, to figure out a way to live in two places at the same time, even though there are internal contradictions between feminist claims, especially gender feminism and the transgender movement. But uh, I see this more classically right now in one place than uh, anywhere else, and and that's the Historic Women's College. So I'm holding an article in my hand here, Ryan. It's from a very recent edition of the Chronicle of Higher Education. And uh, the headline is, Women's Colleges Evolve on Transgender Applicants. It's the most incoherent mess. I I could just imagine someone uh, trying to even translate this into a foreign language. It would be impossible. The internal contradictions, the vocabulary confusion, it's uh, it's – it's not survivable. No, and, and this is, I mean, what's really interesting about the history of this is that Americans are probably at um, the culturally weakest spot to be wrestling with these sorts of questions about gender dysphoria and gender identity. Um, because we don't really know um, what our sexed bodies are for. Um, and we oscillate between two extremes, right? There's an extreme of androgyny on the one hand, that wants to deny that there are any differences between male and female. And that in a, uh, a laudable attempt to embrace equality, they end up embracing sameness, right? So they turn something that's laudable, a, a search for equality, and they turn it in a bad direction. That means we must be the same. And so they end up with androgyny. But then the opposite extreme that we also sometimes oscillate to are kind of rigid sex stereotypes. Uh, in which boys are supposed to play with trucks and girls are supposed to play with dolls and rigid sex stereotypes uh, in terms of um, male and female cognitive abilities or things like this. And the, uh, the, 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 the virtue uh, being a mean between two extremes would want to say that men and women are equal in dignity but complementary in gifts and would then try to articulate, you know, where do our male and female identities make a difference? You know, where is this a difference that makes a difference? And how to raise boys to see themselves as future men, husbands, fathers, girls to see themselves as future women, mothers, and wives. Um, And this is our weakest cultural moment uh, to be thinking about or navigating those questions. 
And so imagine how much more difficult it is if you're a young person who doesn't feel comfortable in your own body. Yes. And how much more difficult it is if you're a parent of a young person struggling in this way to find professional assistance to help your child. Or even pastoral assistance. Yeah, e- even pastoral assistance. This is a uh, this this raises another question that I had from your book. And uh, in order to get there, let me ask you, to whom were you writing this book? Who is the primary audience of, of this book? I would say primary audience here um, are uh, people who have um, a gut feeling that something is wrong with the transgender ideology, but they can't quite articulate it. Uh, yeah. the, the primary audience here is to help people articulate the law that's written on their heart. And they have this intuition, but they, it's not quite fully cognitive. It's not quite fully articulatable. Uh, and this is meant to help crystallize uh, some of their kind of initial insights and some of their initial um, senses. But then, you know, tertiary audiences, secondary and tertiary audience would be, you know, people who aren't quite sure what they think, uh, yes. people who disagree, but who are open to persuasion. And then, of course, the reality is there, there are a lot of people who disagree who aren't open to persuasion. There are a lot of people who didn't arrive at their view through reason in the first place, and so they're not going to be reasoned out of their view. And those aren't the audience of the book. I, I make no claims about being able to reach those people. Well, the reason I ask that question is because of not what is in the book, but what isn't in the book. And uh, that's much of the acknowledgement of, uh, of what's uh, now uh, – not only inevitable, but clear and present collision between uh, the transgender claims and religious liberty. And uh, that that is become because I mentioned uh, that even finding uh, Christian counseling uh, or even uh, finding a church speaking clearly on these issues or finding a Christian college or university that operates on the basis of historic biblical Christian conviction and the, uh, the, the consistent teaching of the Christian church for two millennia. Uh, there's a vulnerability uh, that is that is very present there, and on the one hand, it's the cultural coercion: the we will shut you down, or uh, or to put it another way, you're not going to be able to recruit millennials if you you hold to such a position. Uh, and the, but the the hard uh, fists of the law and uh, the threat of the courts is, uh, or or for that matter, uh, what the Obama administration did through its uh, dear colleague letter. Uh, that's very clear. That you 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 cite that letter, by the way, but you you really don't deal much with the religious liberty challenge in the book. Yeah, that, that's right, and and, and um, partly that's uh, intentional. Um, my two previous books were both right. uh, explicitly on religious liberty, um, and I didn't want people to think primarily about the transgender topic as a religious liberty topic. Um, because before we get to – the religious liberty conflicts will only arise if we lose on the underlying substantive issues. Um, and so there, there's a fear that I have that some readers would say, well, so long as the church maintains its freedom, you know, I don't care about what happens in the broader culture. Or I don't care what happens to my neighbor's kids. And um, before we even get to the religious liberty debate, I think we should actually have a debate about what is the truth about gender identity and gender dysphoria and human nature. Yeah, I just don't think I, I don't think we uh, have a choice here. Uh, d- to be honest, as president of an academic institution, we don't have a choice to decide how we want to sequence this. No, I think that's right. But I think the the, the religious liberty debate will largely be dependent on how um, the larger debate plays out. And w- what I mean by that is this: um, what sort of religious liberties um, do racist bigots 
enjoy in the United States. If the other side frames our core convictions about the human body and human identity as the functional equivalent of racism, uh, Bob Jones University tells us a lot about what our future looks like. And, and the, but that's not just true of the T. That's true of L, G, and B, yep. and Q, and everything that will follow. And uh, that, that's where the cultural strategy has been stunningly successful, even at a velocity that the, uh, the early gay rights activists, as they were known, couldn't have, have predicted. And, and that's why so much of my uh, previous work was, was focused on how to properly understand the nature of marriage. Um, and and so, so anyway, one possible outcome is the analogy to racism – uh, the other possible outcome is an analogy to pro-life medicine. Um, activists have tried to claim that pro-life medicine is sexism, that it's discrimination on the basis of sex and therefore uh, shouldn't be permitted. But we've been able to say that, no, pro-life medicine is eminently reasonable. Uh, what, what motivates the pro-life doctor or nurse or pregnancy center or hospital, it's not an anti-woman view, but it's a pro-child, pro-woman view, that, that, that abortion harms both the baby and the mother. Um, I, I think we, we need to be able to articulate, you know, what it is that we're in favor of for someone who struggles with their gender identity. You know, what type of uh, therapeutic response are we in favor of for someone with gender dysphoria if we hope to maintain the freedom uh, to exercise those therapeutic responses, to exercise those pastoral responses? Um, so anyway, that, that, that's, the, that's the strategy. It's only the, the eighth chapter of the book that deals with public policy, right. and it's only one of those sections within the eighth chapter that deals with religious liberty. Um, but the rest of the book, I wanted to highlight, there are real human costs um, in this, uh, this set of issues. The third chapter just tells some of those personal stories, and I think most people are entirely unaware of the lives that have been ruined because of the activists and their treatment protocols. No, it's, it's a very moving, I mean, your critics would say that you selected those stories, but of course, everybody selects the stories. And I'm, if, if, but for your book, a lot of folks would never have contact with or knowledge of, of those stories. And some of the most important of the narratives you tell are the uh, detransitioning uh, accounts of, uh, of persons who, uh, whose gender dysphoria was only increased by following the, uh, the ideology of the transgender activists and their medical colleagues. And that's what, so, I mean, initially, the way that I started writing on these issues was on the public policy side of things. I work at the Heritage Foundation. It's a public policy think tank. It was the Dear Colleague letter. It was Obamacare, the transgender mandate in Obamacare. It was bathrooms, locker rooms. It was things like that. Um, and I was just dealing it with policy papers and op-eds. It was only after I saw some of these YouTube videos and some of the blogs of people who transitioned, uh, thinking that it was the solution to their problems, and then five or 10 years later detransitioned because transitioning brought them greater struggles, that that's really what convinced me that I had to do an entire book project on this topic. Because it's what convinced me that it wasn't just a debate about bathrooms or locker rooms or religious liberty. It was really a debate about human nature and human flourishing. And as a result, it was a debate about human lives. Um, and it's what I try to capture in the book, that there's actually there's a lot more at stake here uh, than what many in the main, in the media just kind of like dismissively uh, um, uh, refer to as oh there's a bathroom bill or oh it's you know these these uppity Christians who are uh, always in someone else's business um, in a very dis uh, dismissive tone it's 
well, no, there's, we're, we, we care about other people because we care about their flourishing, their happiness, their wholeness, as we should. Yes, as we must. And uh, we are in debt to you for the book. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's provocative as you intended to provoke. Uh, it, it's very thoughtful. Uh, I can see on every page it was written with, uh, with tremendous care. And by that, I mean uh, uh, careful writing, but I also mean care for very real human beings whose, uh, whose lives are at stake, whose uh, flourishing uh, is, is at stake, and as we understand, uh, uh, whose ontology is at stake. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on after this? That is um, to be determined. Um, I wrote a dissertation five years ago, uh, which was titled Neither Liberal Nor Libertarian, A Natural Law Approach to Social Justice and uh, Economics. And I still haven't uh, turned that into a book and published it as a book. And so part of me wants to turn to that next and you know, revise the dissertation and publish it as a book. There's another part of me that wants to wade into some of the debates that are currently taking place um, between critics and defenders of um, liberalism, understood not as kind of like left-wing politics, right. but as the John, the John Locke Enlightenment project. Um, and so I don't know. Uh, right now, I've just, uh, the book came out, what is it, three months ago now, and so it's mainly sure. just been um, uh, kind of talking about the book and uh, uh, kind of um, helping people understand what's in the book. But at some point, probably later this summer, I will really um, set my sights on what the next big project is. Yes, and Patrick Dunin, with whom I had a great conversation for this program just a matter of weeks ago, has uh, has, has perhaps more than anyone else sparked that latter conversation. And, uh, I and he's excellent. To I mean, he, yeah. he's the best representative of that Absolutely. viewpoint that, that, that there is, yeah. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing your contribution. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Ryan Anderson, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you. conversation like this comes with both promise and frustration. The promise is that we are going to talk about issues that really matter and truths that are eternal. The frustration comes in understanding that there is no way in such a conversation we can deal with all of the most pressing and urgent issues that come upon us in something as significant as this transgender moment, as it is called. In his book, When Harry Became Sally, Ryan T. Anderson has drawn many of the most important issues together, and he has considered them carefully. It's one of those books that basically dares for refutation. It's going to be very, very difficult for anyone to refute the book and its arguments. Why? Because the book's arguments are grounded in reality, and eventually, reality trumps unreality. But it is interesting and revealing to see that a lot of the discussion about the book is really about dismissing the very existence of the argument, preventing, culturally speaking, especially in the larger conversation in the media and in academia and public policy, preventing any consideration of the fact that the claims, and that means the very current claims of the transgender activists, might not be worthy. Or to press the argument even further, that their truth claims are simply untrue. What is revealed in this particular moment and in this cultural conversation is a confusion so deep that it threatens the very existence of human civilization. If that sounds to be a strong statement, then just consider the civilizational portrait we have on America's most elite college and university campuses. This is clearly a cultural experiment that is doomed to failure. 
But for Christians considering these issues, there are fundamental theological and biblical issues that are at stake, issues prior even to any public or cultural conversation about the entire range of issues related to the LGBTQ revolution, a revolution to which many other letters are almost assuredly to be added. But for Christians, this kind of book is a very good resource, a very good place to begin thinking through some of these issues, the very issues of current debate in the culture. But that debate is going to move forward, and move forward with a tremendous speed such that we don't know the kinds of questions we're going to be asked and the kind of issues we're going to be confronting right around the corner. And in this case, we're not talking about in the next generation. We're talking about perhaps within the next week. But as I argued in my 2015 book, We Cannot Be Silent, Speaking Truth to a Culture, Redefining Sex, Marriage, and the Very Meaning of Right and Wrong, in dealing with these very same issues about three years before the emergence of Ryan Anderson's book, I wanted to take Christians back to a certain very important place to conclude. I wrote this, Christians need to remember that the sufficiency of Scripture gives us a comprehensive worldview that equips us to wrestle with even the most challenging ethical dilemmas of our time. Finally, the gospel provides the only true remedy for sexual brokenness. The theological and pastoral challenges we face in the transgender revolution are indeed enormous, but they are not beyond the sufficiency of Christ's cross and resurrection. As much as Christians need to enter into and understand the secular conversation— For Christians, we can't end with a merely secular affirmation. At the end of the day, human flourishing cannot be separated from the Creator and from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, many thanks to my guest, Ryan Anderson, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.